Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years today's episode is Selected Tragedy, Volume 10, Tragic True Stories. When you tell a true story of tragedy, it has an interesting tension because the fact that you're alive to tell it, the fact that you have made some sense of what's happened to you or what's happened to your family or what's happened to people throughout history, the fact that you've come to this place where you can comment on it and tell that story means that in some ways, it's less tragic than if you were telling a sad piece of fiction which might have a more classical tragic arc but it means that the stories that you're telling of sad and dark things are real and the sadness of real things in some ways feels more sad than the sadness of fiction so That's the kind of stuff that's going to be covered today with some laughs, with some tears, with some thoughts. And from a content note point of view, you should be prepared for, yeah, some really dark stuff. We've got prison, we've got genocide, we've got war crimes, we've got imperialism, we've got racism, we've got abuse, we've got family issues, issues about belonging and identity and fitting in and getting on with your family we've got crime we've got homelessness we've got bereavement we've got death and mixed in with that we've got werewolf erotica hilarious comedy beautiful moments of partial reconciliation overcoming adversity and the obstacles that are put in people's way, telling some of the untold, unknown parts of history. So all of that stuff is mixed in together in today's episode. And if you enjoy today's episode, then why not come along to the next live stand-up tragedy event, which is happening really soon now, on Saturday the 28th of February at the Hackney Attic, where we've got Tragic Winter, a show that tries to find the bleakness in the midwinter and change it into catharsis. There's an excellent lineup. Tickets in advance are £5. Tickets on the door are £7. And now sit back, relax, and prepare yourself for today's tragedy. First up, we have the comedian Deborah Francis white she was performing with us at our tragic martyrs night last year and you can find 
more of what she does and more about the show that she's talking about at www.debrafrancis-white.com. Uh, so put your hands together for Deborah Francis White! So I always knew I was adopted. Uh, it was always said as if it was a very positive thing. You're special. We specially wanted you. Some people have children accidentally. Not us. We had to fill out a form. <laughs> My mother teases me now that when I was a toddler, when I met people for the first time, I used to tell them, I special, so they would know. I say, yes, mother, that is because you told me that. But it, the truth is, I think I probably did feel special because I was the only kid in the family who had a cool story about my birth because my brother and sister were born the regular way. Um, now, you would have been told growing up you look exactly like your mum or the spitting image of your dad. Just put your hand up if you look like your mum. Nothing bad will happen. Look like your dad. Look like some other random relative. Random relative. Random? Yes? Who do you look like? Your grandfather, he's not too random. He's a direct, but, but you know, delightful. He must, he must, be, he must be cute. Uh, uh, and you, sir? Second cousin. So you look like your second cousin. Wow. Right, do you think you, have, you may have the same dad? It's possible. No, best to keep that suppressed. Anybody not like Or you'll end up up here. Um, that's what happens. Oh, the, the thing is... I didn't look like anyone in the family, but people always told me anyway. They'd say, you look just like your mum or the spinning image of your dad, but I guess people see what they want to see. Because although I shared my parents' house and their, their, their food and their love, I did not share their genes. Um, the cool story about my adoption uh, that I used to ask my parents to tell me was this. went like this. Um, my parents especially asked for a baby... They filled out a form, and almost nine months to the day after they had asked, as long as you would wait for a baby anyway, my mother got a call. The lady at the hospital said to her, we have a girl for you, a baby girl for you, but you have to come and get her right now. So uh, my mother got a call in the middle of the day, baby girl, you've got to come and get her now. Uh, so she had to ring my father, who was at work, in the middle of the day, and tell him, you've got to come home right now. <laughs> and, uh, but there'd been a big storm. There'd been a terrible storm, electrical storm. So the phone lines down near his work were down. So she couldn't get through. So she had to send him a telegram. And when he opened it, one of his colleagues in the office said to him, what is it? Have you won the lottery? And he said, no, it's better than that. And he got in the car and he drove home, picked up my mother and my older sister and they drove 45 minutes away in Brisbane in Redcliffe to collect me. And on the way they had to stop for nappies and bottles because they didn't have anything prepared. And when they got there, my father always used to say, the first time I saw you, you were blue with the cold and so thin. Last fucking time that happened, I'll tell you that for nothing. You get home to a nice middle class family, you eat everything put in front of you. Because the first ten days of your life you've had to flag down a passing nurse to get her to bring you milk. When the milk comes, you drink all the milk. And that shit is hardwired, people. That stays with you for life. And they, they picked me up in their arms and they took me down the steps onto the pavement of the, in front of the hospital. 
And as they arrived there, our neighbours, the Langleys, from 45 minutes away, just happened to be driving by in the middle of the day in the week. And they slammed the brakes on, opened the doors, jumped out and ran over to see what was going on because my parents had a newborn baby and my mother had not been pregnant. My parents said, we've just adopted her. And as the Langleys were cooing over me and looking at me, a long line of cars backed up down the street. And my father always said, and you've been stopping traffic ever since. And that was the story of my adoption. Now, my mother always said how I was more like her than her biological children, and that is true. Uh, my, my sister is very even-keeled. My mother and I are very theatrical in our emotions. Uh, my mother and I used to like to give extravagant gifts. My sister always hoarded her pocket money for a rainy day. She still got it. She still actually has that pocket money in the bank. She really does. She has that pocket money in the bank for a rainy day. Uh, My mother and I hated maths. Maths was our nemesis. My sister was good at maths. My mother and I found maths to be a language we could not understand. Uh, It was like no one could show us the dictionary. My sister deliberately took five years of sewing at school. That was on purpose. Deliberately took five years of sewing at school. She chose that. She didn't have to do it. I don't think you're getting it. It was a deliberate choice to sew for a five-year window. That was not compulsory. I had to do six months of sewing. At the end of that period, all my samplers were dirty and tear-stained. Um, my, my sister is as unlike me as any human being could be. I adore my sister, but she is a tiny bird of a person, and she lives on a vegetarian retreat in rural Australia. She's always stroking a duck or eating a vegetable. I live in Camden Town and prefer my steak rare. Um, my mother and I were the same. My sister was different. I'm aware some of the ways in which I'm like my mother are possibly sublimated attempts to attach myself to her. You know, I knew I wasn't really her biological child, so maybe, maybe you know the way they dress piglets in stripy jackets to get a tiger to suckle them? It's possible I'm just a piglet in disguise. I don't feel that, though. I feel uh, I came up with a very strong personality, and some of the ways in which I have a strong personality, I'm not like anyone in my family. For example, I'm the only performer in the family. My first performance uh, was my nursery school end-of-year show. I was a horse. Um, I I had to come out with ten other little horses and we all did a little prancy dance like this. Think Gangnam Style, only I was in a white onesie and three years old. And I remember it really well. I remember the audience laughing and clapping and cheering. And I remember all the other horses dancing away. And I remember thinking, this audience is not done with this dance. And they are not done with me. So I danced on, and the audience clapped more, and I danced on, and the audience laughed more, and I danced on, and the teacher had to come and lead me away. And this story was legendary in our household, because nobody would have done that. My sister was very shy. Though my sister was four years older, she used to push me in the back. She used to say, you go and buy the ice cream from the ice cream van. You're the outgoing one. My mother tells me when I was seven years old, I asked her what shy meant, because I could not get my head around the concept. The other way in which I was not like anyone in my family is I always wanted to live in London, always, from the time I could read. I could read from four years old. I read all the books I read were set in London, and that's where I wanted to live. I knew I wanted to live there. Um, I was brought up in in Australia, and I know I don't sound especially Australian, but I read a lot of Enid Blyton as a child, and I picked up the accent from the books. (laughs) 
And in those ways, I couldn't help wondering, was there a mother or a father or a sister or a brother, biologically speaking, out there who may be like me? And I think it doesn't matter how successful your adoption is, and my adoption was successful. You can't help wondering what's behind the curtain. And in my case, I wondered, behind the curtain, was there a big family of people playing games after dinner and laughing? And if I went through the curtain, would they say, oh, it's you. We've been waiting for you. There's a chair here with your name on it. Sit down. Now, I never looked. I was figured it was like a can of worms. I guess I felt that if you don't look... All the wonderful things that might be behind the curtain are still yours. But if you do look, all the terrible things that might be behind the curtain are definitely yours. So I didn't. I could have, because in Australia, adoption has been handled properly. Here in Britain, it seems to have been handled exclusively by nuns. People who seem to me to be uniquely unqualified to understand anything going into or coming out of a vagina. I don't know why. There, in Australia, if you want to give your baby away, you have to give it to the state. Here, I literally know a girl who, I know an actual girl. She was handed over the fence to a neighbour. The lady was leaving the street. She said, I've got four children, you've got none. Do you want the baby? And that lady was allowed to keep that child. In Australia, no. You've got to give the baby to the state. Now, on the other hand, well, Australia was so keen to have an industrial government-run adoption programme, they pretty much snatched babies out of prams, shouted unfit mother, but they were brilliant on the paperwork. Uh, So they apologised about every three months uh, for this embarrassing indiscretion, but they, you know, the forms are wonderfully, the delightful admin on it. Uh, Here, you just have to find the nun, and she says, oh, I think she had green eyes, and that's all you get. But there, there it's pretty easy. And when I was 21, I rang up and I asked. I said to the the lady on the phone... um, I said, uh, could you tell me my biological mother's name? Now, I did not want to uh, contact her. I just thought I should know her name. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, well, yes, I can tell you, but if I tell you her name and then she calls, I will have to tell her your name. It's reciprocal. Do you want that? And I said, oh, God, no, I'm not ready. I may never be ready. No, no, no. I said, don't worry. Don't tell me. And she said, well, I can tell you some things. Uh, I I can tell you that your biological mother was 21 and single. And I said, well, actually, I knew that. My parents told me that. And she said, right, well, your father was 30 and married to somebody else. And I said, well, I I knew that. I think my parents told me that so that when I I was old enough to ask, ask questions, that they would, so that I would know she had no choice but to give me away. My mother always used to say she must have loved you a lot to give you away. She must have loved you so much she gave you to a family who could look after you because she wouldn't have wanted to do that. And uh, so I always felt loved by everyone. I told the lady this, and she seemed almost put out that I knew and started shouting random facts at me. Well, she was five foot nine. Did you know that? I did not, same as me. She had brown hair and brown eyes. Did you know that? I did not, same as me. And she said, and when you were born, she called you Nadine. Did you know that? And I did not. I didn't even know biological mothers gave their babies names. And I said, well, thank you very much. That's lovely. Um, Thank you. And I'll, I'll, you know, nice to have that information. And I went to hang up and she said, I can tell you a first name. I said, what? She said, I can tell you a first name. Because that information is not identifying. I can tell you her first name. (laughs) So keen was she to give out information. I said, all right then, tell me your first name. She said, well, I'll have to put you on hold because that information is in a more secret file. (laughs) 
She went off, she came back and she said, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you. I can tell most people. There's a step there. Um, I can tell most people, but not you. You are an exception to the rule. You cannot know your biological mother's first name. And I said, why? And she said, because your birth mother's first name is so unusual as to be identifying. (laughs) And I thought, well, there you are. My birth mother is Jermaine Greer. (laughs) And I lived with that for some years. Uh, I... It was kind of a joke. I would make me, it kind of wasn't. I kind of thought, you know, it's good she's given me away. She's done so much for the sisterhood. No, she, she's, done a, she's done a lot with her time. And uh, one day we will discuss feminism in Cambridge. For sure. Uh, but then a few years ago, I thought, you know what? I don't think she's ever tried to find out my name. And I rang them and they said she hasn't. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to roll the dice. I reckon I can ask her name and she's never going to ask mine. So I said, go on, tell me. Tell me. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, your birth mother's name was Devon Eulalia Pearl. <laughs> that is a name, Devon Eulalia Pearl. Now my hand shook as I put that into Google because I thought I really could see something with that. You really could see, that's a one-off. That's a one-off, people. But there was nothing there. Um, there was a long line of Eulalia Pearls that went back to the 1600s in Cornwall in the censuses. Um, they went back in Cornwall and Devon. Uh, long line of Eulalia pearls, all landed gentry, big houses, lots of servants. Sure, think we all saw that coming. <laughs> Touch of the Downton Abbs. Sure. But there was nothing under, De- even Devon Eulalia, even if she changed her name, I thought I might see something. And I thought, well, you know, a woman that age isn't going to suddenly start to build an enormous online profile, is she? So I just assumed I would find out no more. Uh, but, you know, that she was probably just in New York City running a literary salon. <laughs> lying on a chaise long, reading poetry to handsome men. That was most likely and I figured one day I would get a phone call saying I'd inherited a large Cornish estate and I got back on with my life but on October 23rd 2012 after a particularly boozy lunch with a friend of mine who had confessed to me that he had biological family he wanted to meet but was too scared to because he was a famous comedian and he didn't want the Daily Mail involved I thought oh I haven't googled that for ages I'll just have a look it'll just take a minute before I drop off to sleep. There's never anything there. And as I hit search, I had never been more wide awake. Because somebody, somebody had archived the electoral records from the time of my birth. Suddenly I could see that Devon Eulalia Pearl had been living in Cooperoo, in, in Temple Street, with her mother, Audrey, her father, Charles, her brothers, Duncan and Derek, and her sisters, Danielle and Deborah. A name my mother had dreamt for me. And that was when I began the greatest treasure hunt of my life. I didn't sleep for the following three weeks. At the end of that treasure hunt, I discovered family. Now, I won't won't tell you any more because my ten minutes has run out. And, uh, well, I have a show about it. I don't want to give it away. But I will just tell you this. I have spoken to my biological mother and uh, weeks later it was my birthday. And uh, I'd forgotten that she would know that. And she sent me something in the post. 
She likes to sew. (laughs) She said, I've made you something. She's very crafty. My mother and I have no blue Peter skills, but my biological mother will. She sent me this. She said, it's a scarf I've made for you. It's not really a scarf, though, is it? It's a loop that goes on forever. It's a woolen apology. A tangible hug. A homemade birth canal. (laughs) And at times it feels umbilical and strangulating, but at other times warm and comforting. I've been Deborah Francis White. My show's Half a Can of Worms. Please come. Thank you very much. Deborah Francis White, everybody. Next up, we've got a true story told by Ali Mason, who is a regular storyteller at Spark London Storytelling Nights. You can follow him at Ali Mason on Twitter, and he's a regular contributor to the website www.forfolkssake.com. Put your hands together for Ali Mason! Hello. My sister and I took two sheets of A4 paper. On one, we wrote the word hello, and on the other, goodbye. We got the idea from a Sunday morning kids' TV show we've been watching, in which one of the characters had lost their voice and needed a way to communicate, and we thought this was kind of cool. When my parents came down for breakfast, we greeted them with a silent hello, and followed it up with a cheery goodbye, which they took in good spirits. When my gran arrived for lunch later that day, my sister and I rushed to the front door to put our new toy to good use. Hello, we greeted her silently. And then because we had literally nothing else to say, goodbye. (laughs) To our surprise, our gran did not greet this with the same dutiful delight that our parents had done Instead, she suggested that she had never been so insulted in all her life, that if she wasn't welcome here, she would leave, which she did, leaving my dad to chase after her down the street and try and convince her to come back and eat the lunch that my mum had been preparing all morning. Later, my sister and I were required to apologise via letter, the details of which escaped me, But I do remember the stinging feeling of injustice of being forced to apologise when I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. But nobody knew more about injustice than my gran. She was Jewish and German and came over during the war to escape persecution from the Nazis. She managed to make it out of Germany, but she was the only one of her family who did. But of course, none of that really means anything to you when you're eight years old and being forced to apologise when you don't think you have anything to apologise for. It was a a common topic of conversation in our house when I was growing up. 
Was my gran the way she was because of the things that she'd experienced when she was younger? Or was she simply, as she was often slightly euphemistically referred to in my house, an awkward woman? <laughs> Most strongly of the latter opinion was my dad, her son. And if that seems unkind, then it's worth remembering that he was on the receiving end of some of her most awkward behavior. For example, he remembers when he was young, really young, being taken to a um, department store in Bradford, near where he lived, at Christmas time to meet Santa Claus. And the shop had really gone to town, creating this sort of winter wonderland on the way in, which he and my gran traversed with the uh, with all the hordes of shoppers. When they finally got to the front and were about to, to meet Santa Claus, uh, my grand suddenly decided that she didn't really want to pay the, the sixpence or whatever it cost. So she turned around and seeing the, the, the crowds blocking her from the exit, she took, a, took one look and said, my boy's about to be sick. Stand back, my boy's going to be sick at which point the crowd rapidly parted and she was able to drag my dad away. More painfully, I think my dad remembers her reaction when he won a place at Cambridge University. This was uh, not inconsiderable feat for the son of a, a working-class immigrant family in the 1960s. The way it worked at the time, you could either be offered a place if they really liked you, you could be offered a, a partial scholarship if they really, really liked you, or you could be offered a full scholarship if you were a genius, more or less. My dad got the middle of these three options. And when he told his mum that he'd been offered a, a partial scholarship at the most prestigious university in the country, Face Facts Oxford, <laughs> her response was, well, you always were second-rate. Generationally removed from the Holocaust as I was, it was hard for me to associate this severe woman in my life with the things that we learnt about at school. It was not a subject she talked about and certainly it was not a subject that we were encouraged to raise with her. I did, however, know what you might call some of the more cinematic details I knew, for example, that when she first arrived in this country, she lived with, uh, a wealthy, with wealthy sponsors, the Beerbone Tree family, along with a young Oliver Reed, who was a uh, son of an illegitimate child of someone somewhere on the family tree. And I knew that from there, she was whisked off to an internment camp on the Isle of Man in case she was some kind of threat to national security. She was a German national, after all. And I knew that after that, she ended up in Yorkshire, where within days, she was posted on top of the Bradford Odeon and told to look out for enemy planes, all of a sudden, somewhat ironically, uh, vital to the war effort. Now, the internment of Jews uh, on the Isle of Man during the Second World War, I think, is not something that is known about that much in this country for anyone who's interested I can recommend the book The Secret Purposes by David Baddiel. When my dad and I read this book, it gave us a, a framework in which to, to talk with my gran about the subject. We wanted to know, was, was the camps like uh, how it was depicted in the book? Was, uh, was there a thriving arts community, like the book said? 
Did she remember the camp newspaper, for example? Did people there really think they were being secretly fed iodine? Knit one, pearl one, was her response. That's what we used to say. Whatever happens, carry on knitting. She said, everything I ever learnt about sex and knitting I learnt on the Isle of Man. <laughs> We didn't inquire any further. <laughs> this conversation took place late in her life, in her little house which was as run down as she was. Her greatest fear in life was that she would end up in a, in a home. Such a great fear was this, in fact, that we as a family were banned from seeing my dad's sister unless my gran was there, lest we should start plotting behind her back. She got her wish and stayed until nearly the end of her life in this little terraced house, the same one she'd lived in since the 1950s, which was never redecorated, never updated, never refurbished, just stayed the same like some kind of shabby exhibit in the Jeffrey Museum. <laughs> just as stubbornly, it seemed to me, she kept hold of her German accent, which was as thick and impenetrable as if she'd never lived a day outside of Berlin in her life. Another reminder, perhaps, of a time that no longer existed. Around about this time, another subject came up for the first time. I went around to visit one afternoon, and she was agitated. And concern was not a characteristic I particularly associated with my gran. But it turned out that the source of her agitation was a worry that I, in my day-to-day -day life, might suffer from anti-Semitism. I assured her that I didn't. I told her that I didn't think particularly it was something that Jewish people had to worry about quite as much anymore. Although in truth, I'm no expert. For one thing, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> but it seemed to soothe her nonetheless. My final goodbye with my gran was in hospital. There was uh, very little brain activity left in her at this point, And she would have only a couple more days left to live after my sister and I went to visit her. Lying there in her NHS standard issue nighty, she looked very small, very old, and finally very placid. There was obviously enough brain function going on for her to register a certain level of discomfort because I remember every so often she would reach down and kind of start to hitch up her nighty, thereby exposing herself to anyone who happened to be nearby at the time. That she did this in front of my sister, who legendarily in my family is so prudish she can't even bring herself to say the word bra in front of other people, <laughs> seemed to me like one final glorious act of spite. <laughs> <laughs> my sister and I took it in turns to say our goodbyes, while the other made a discreet retreat into a nearby corridor. I don't know what my sister said, but when it was my turn, I couldn't really think of anything I wanted to say, so I just sat there in silence. Thank you.
And now we return to our tragic martyrs night with another true storyteller who I met through the Spark London True Storytelling Night. This true story is from Lara B, who you can follow at Lara Mascara NYC on Twitter. Everybody put your hands together for Lara B! I have no idea what she's going to do, but I suspect it's going to be brilliant. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm not from here, so if I start talking really fast and you can't understand, just give me a fist pump and I'll slow down. I don't want you to get lost. I don't consider myself tragic and I don't consider myself a martyr. I always sort of thought of myself more along the lines of like an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, which is like inherited because I'm Cuban and Irish and Jewish. And either they were going to end up with that or they were going to build a bomb. And they got me, which isn't so bad. So for, for, you know, most of my life, it was like Life of Larrabee starring her mother over there. Her mother was like, my mother was really fabulous and tall and had huge tits and she took up all the air in the room. Um, And... uh, You know, she was like mostly a normal mom, except she wasn't, but in one way she was because she, you know, she knew how to press my buttons, you know, because she installed them like your mother did. Your mother definitely did. I can tell from looking at you. You spot it, you got it, sister. And we fought. We fought all the time because that's what mothers and daughters do and... I know that being a mom is the hardest job in the world. I get it. I tried to raise my mother and I fucking failed. Okay? So I know. Like, you're not telling me anything I don't know. So I'm not here to diss moms. You know, it's it's all good. She you know, she was she was very hard to manage and she she would stay out late and she would, you know, not wear a bra and she would go out on motorcycles and not put on a helmet and she would borrow money and not pay it back and I'm still angry. Because I inherited so much from her. I'm so like her. I am my mother's daughter. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree and every other fucking cliche you can think of, it's all in there. The thing is, moms, they, they, they pass you their issues like it's a family recipe for cake. They do. That's what they do. If I had a kid, I, my cats are fucked up. If I had a kid, it would be fucked up. I don't have any kids. You're all going to fuck up your kids. Just get cats. They're like children. But if you fuck them up, they can't really tell. They won't write about it. So for the first 22 years of my life, I had the same conversation with my mother. And it wasn't good. It was an argument. I argued with my mother for 22 years. For 22 years, I said, I'm the daughter. You're the mother. I don't know what the argument was about. I never, never won. So I stopped arguing. Because there wasn't any point. I wasn't going to win. <sighs> so, you know, I know. 
I really do know that my mother just wanted me to be happy. She just wanted me to be happy. She wanted me to be a lesbian and a sculptor and live in a squat in Paris and be happy. That's all she wanted for me. You know, she didn't have bad intentions. That's just who she was. So my mother taught me to make lists too. All right. I'm going to read you something here. That's what's on here. And it is something that I wrote in 1983. Do you, is any, was anyone here alive in 1983? Raise your hand. Six people. Okay. For the rest of you, 1983 was really good. You missed it. All right. So I'm just going to say you'll never understand how cool David Bowie was. All right. I'm going to read this. It's called Art. I found this in my mother's jewelry box. It was folded up really, really small, and it was stuck in the corner. That's where I found it. I wrote this in 1983 when I was 13 years old, so don't get on my case if it sucks, because I was 13. And I wrote it from a New York State group home for neglected children, the the envelope was with it. I mailed it to her. And it's called Art. She came home at daybreak, stumbling in with glitter falling from her eyes and sequins falling from her dress. I watched my mother tie her glistening blue-black hair up in a knotted mess with an old torn scarf. She still looked beautiful. Her mascara and lipstick were smudged, as always, after a night out partying, and it made her face look like a watercolor painting. I watched as she reached for the wine key that was always on the kitchen table. She opened the fridge, and she removed the bottle from inside the door. I shivered from the cold blast of air on my bare arms. Afraid she would see me watching her, I pressed my small five-year-old body farther under the table, as close to the wall as I could. She poured the wine, and I waited for the next step. The cigarette. She fumbled for her pack inside her disco bag. I could hear the keys and the zipper, the inside pocket, and a few annoyed little mumbles from under her breath. I heard the click of the lighter, and I could smell burning hair. I moved closer to the end of the table just to get a little look. I was afraid she'd gone up in flames. I always loved watching her, and I always feared that she would somehow disintegrate. She had a fine film of sweat covering her soft brown body, as usual, making her look like an exotic tropical plant that someone misted. I was glad she had come home alone, even though I knew that that would be the source of her unhappiness tomorrow. I hated the men that she brought home, the noises that they made, and the way they called her baby. She leaned back in the splintered wooden chair and kicked off her black velvet designer stiletto shoes. They were my favorite of all of her shoes. Soon she would finish her two glasses of wine. She'd pour the third. She'd head into her bedroom till late in the afternoon. 
She never took her shoes with her, and every morning I picked up her shoes from under the table and I wore them while making myself breakfast. When she woke in the late afternoon, she always had a headache. It was my job to bring her water and uh, two, sometimes three, of the little blue pills from the coffee table. On three pill days, I tried to be as quiet as I could. I would spend those days in my room like I did when the grunting men were there. My favorite days were the ones that were two pill days without anyone else but us. She would enter the kitchen. She would roll her eyes and with like a half smile, she would tell me funny stories about the fabulous New York City nightclubs. I would make her strong Cuban coffee, and we would go out. We would go out and we would hunt for furniture that rich people had tossed out. We took the subway uptown to the world of the doorman buildings, and we carried our found treasures all the way back to the Lower East Side. And all the doormen knew my mother, and they all loved her. They even saved some of the good stuff for her in the building storage rooms. We stripped down the tables, and we painted the shelves and glued fabric remnants to the lampshades, and we sold them on St. Mark's Place. My mother always said, we turned other people's trash into works of art, and other people turned works of art into trash. She often said this to me as she put on her dress and her shoes and her makeup for a date, becoming a work of art herself. On March 4th, my mother died. And I went to her house for the first time. And I cleaned up after her for the very last time. Thank you. Lara B, everybody. So now we move from the personal to the more wider sense of true story, which is history. Here is the comedian Jambi McGrath doing just that at Tragic History last year at the Hackney Attic. You can find more about Jambi and what she does at www.jambimcgraffcomedy.co.uk and you spell her name N-J-A-M-B-I-M-C-G-R-A-T-H and here she is now giving us a very important lesson in history. Put your hands together for Jambi McGrath! 
Hello. Uh, how do we feel about politicians? We like politicians? Yeah. Nah, oh, <laughs> that's good. Because, you know, politicians say they do things in our, on, in our name. You know, like spend our taxes on second homes. But, but uh, on the 18th of January of this year, I was busy chilling out with my friends, doing our thing. And then my father had to ruin it for me by dying. So I flew to Kenya, and that's where I'm from, uh, to find healing. And someone had to say something for me that had to go and ruin it for me. Because politicians say things like collateral damage, and you never really know what that means. I discovered that collateral damage is the baby that's found suckling, suckling on his dead mother, whilst his five-year-old sister sits by watching too dumbfounded to speak. Incredibly, this little girl gets up, carries her baby brother, and they stagger into nothingness. But to get to that story, we have to go far in history. So consider this. The year is 1885. A few aristocratic men gather around the table discussing the burning issues of the day. Not European women's voting rights or the prevalence of gout amongst the upper classes. But something much more fundamental. The modernization of Africa. <laughs> they shouldn't have bothered. <laughs> no, really, they shouldn't have. And when was the last time you put aristocratic middle-aged men in the same category as change and modern and forward-thinking? <laughs> Ever. So nonetheless, sat around the table were Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, having a siesta, uh, and Belgium facing the other way. And uh, on the wall, they have a big map of Africa. And with a pen, they literally drew borders, determining the future of Africans for centuries to come. What's weird now, Africans are more likely to have a map of Europe determining on which borders to cross. <laughs> so, at the time it didn't really matter because we were just jungle savages. So, uh, it was that France took the western part of Africa, Germany took the three countries when measured equals to an isosceles triangle, <laughs> Britain took all the countries in the center, and Belgium, took the place right in the middle. And at the time when Belgium took the Congo, it was under the kingship of King Leopold II, a nutcase who managed to kill half of the population in seven years. Now that's careless. <laughs> Italy took the whole of Africa, presumably to blow for their bonga bonga parties. And when Spain woke up from their siesta, that was all that was left. <laughs> and no one, no one wanted Ethiopia. <laughs> I can't decide what's worse. <laughs> and so it was that Kenya was declared a British protectorate in 1895 by Queen Victoria. And soon after, the work began to build the East African Railway from the Indian Ocean port of Mombasa all the way to the source of the Nile. They didn't consult us on our railway building expertise. They outsourced to India. <laughs> Only at the time, the Indians came to you, 30,000 of them. Now, had they consulted us on our local knowledge, we could have told them where the man-eating beasts were. <laughs> and I'm not talking about Katie Price. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the man-eating lions of Savo. 
There were two menless male lions that developed a uh, uh, taste for blood and always went for the burrow, beat like Cameron and Osborne. <laughs> but uh, they also sent a guy called Sir Charles Elliot to assess the territory and the people. His assessment of the territory was that the central province of Kenya, with its bright red soils and heavy rainfall, was perfect for the British habitation. His assessment of the people was that they were black. <laughs> Correction, I would say varying shades of brown. <laughs> His other assessment of uh, the Africans was that the Africans were lacking in every way. Until one of the men dropped his trousers, the whole place went dark. And so, uh, uh, he renamed the central province of Kenya the White Highlands. So now, that was destined to be for white people. But there was one tiny little problem. There was no white people living in the White Highlands. So they placed adverts in London, advertising cheap land and cheap labor. The respondents, old Etonians. <laughs> and you know what fun those boys can be? <laughs> And there was others too from Harrow and other public school Oxbridge educated aristocrats dipped in blue blood and syphilis. <laughs> they also placed adverts in South Africa. The respondents just the racists. <laughs> and off to the new frontier. So now there was white people for the white highlands. But one tiny little problem. The Kikuyu farmers that lived there. And if you know anything about the Kikuyu, they were industrious people. And they are renowned for their love of money. It is said that if you want to spot a Kikuyu, drop a coin, and they all turn around. <laughs> but getting rid of them was easy. They would turn up, touch the village, the panicked villagers would be hoarded into a lorry, and boom, expelled into some desolate lands, surrounded by barbed wire called the native reserves. But life was beautiful for the settlers who settled in rather nicely with wife swapping, <laughs> swinging, orgies. They even created their own Moulin Rouge. They drank champagne and pink gin for breakfast. They played cards all day. They danced all night, woke up in the morning with a dick in one's mouth. And that was just their horses. They had drugs dropped from airplanes. They turned the central province of Kenya into one huge hedonistic haven of sex, drugs, and oppressor native. <laughs> Even Satan in hell was thinking, Jesus! <laughs> Wrong team. So, the native reserves were overcrowded, and you can imagine the type of decision you would make if you were snorting coke and shagging. The decision they made for the natives was rather damning because all the Kikuyus, all of them had to wear a metal frame, a, a, an ID on a metal frame around their necks. They had no permission to leave their enclosures. They had to carry an employment record. They had to pay not one but two types of taxes, hard tax and poll tax, equivalent to two months wages, but no employment. They were fined if they didn't pay. And the decision was made to clear all food crops from the central province of Kenya to make way for important crops like tobacco and tea and coffee. So the Kikuyus became impoverished. They became malnourished and now relied on handouts from the Red Cross. 
And those are the images that have come to define Africa. But what could go wrong? Of course, the Kikuyus were not very happy. So they got a few elders to go to the British and tell them, please, can you give us a little bit more of our land and some freedom? They were dismissed as jungle buffoonery. So they had no choice but start an armed rebellion. They formed a group called the Mau Mau. The Mau Mau had no money, so they used tactics like killing those who were loyal to the British government. They started attacking the settlers. The settlers became hysterical. They marched to the governor of Kenya and insisted that something be done to the Kikuyus who were ruining their orgy. <laughs> the governor reacted by declaring Kenya a state of emergency. 20,000 troops were brought in from Lancashire Fusiliers, from the King's African Rifles, the African branch of the British military. Amongst them, their brightest star, a young man by the name of Idi Amin Dada. <gasps> you ought to know him, he was the last king of Scotland. <laughs> so, under the state of emergency, uh, all human rights were suspended. There was to be collective punishment. They brought in hanging in 1952. They brought in hanging. And all the Maumaus were to be arrested. But there was one problem. No one knew who the Maumau were. Because to join the Mauma, one had to take an oath of allegiance. And because of Kikuyu superstition, that was unbreakable, making it virtually impossible to distinguish between those who had taken the oath and those who hadn't. And so the decision was made to arrest the whole entire tribe. 1.5 million of them were arrested. So my mother was eight years old, first asleep in the sack that she used to sleep in, that's all they had next to her mother and her two older sisters. They were woken up at night by shouting and barking on the dog's announcement on the tannoy. My grandmother grabbed her children ran outside. The houses were on fire. There was officers with sessions. They were shining lights into their faces. The men were hoarded into lorries and they were taken to hardcore detention camps. The women and children were taken into diff different lorries to be taken to special villages. So by the morning, my grandmother and her children found themselves in a place like that, a field, surrounded by barbed wire and a watchtower. Upon arrival, they had to walk in front of a hooded person. This person would nod if they identified you as the Mau Mau. They put a black stick on you, you were taken away. Luckily for my grandmother, she was identified as Grey. Grey meant they didn't know whether she was or she wasn't the Mau Mau. So they could stay in this field. But they had nowhere to stay. There was no accommodation, there was no nothing. The women were escorted to the forest to cut trees to come and build their homes. But up until then, they had to sleep in their elements. And it didn't stop raining just because a woman had given birth. It didn't stop raining just because a woman had pneumonia. It didn't stop raining just because cry babies cried all night because of cold and hunger. It didn't stop raining, but it gave the women an incentive because that's what we would do. They began building homes for their children. And my grandmother was building her house frantically because she had to provide a home for her kids. And the woman next to her had to build a home to provide somewhere for her kids. And the woman next to them because we had raised up to the challenge. And then they thought if we worked together as a team, we could build one and that the children could be warm for the night. And that's what they did. When the work was finished, it looked like that. The houses had to be in neat straight rows with the doors facing the watchtower. Because the watchtower had to have a perfect view of the women. 
The women had to have a perfect view of the asshole. Every morning they would be woken up, six o'clock on the dot, to go and start digging trenches all day without food or water. The women were beaten. Those that did not cooperate, by not cooperate, I mean who walked too slowly because they'd been beaten, because their baby had died in the night of malnutrition and cold. They were taken to special cells, and this is where Idi Amin and his superiors came in. These people redefined rape. They raped these women using broken bottles and glass and hot-boiled eggs. They crushed chilies and inserted them into their vaginas, poisoning from them, uh, them from inside. And after all that, they were paraded to be given lessons on British values. This story could go on, but I've only got 10 minutes. But there was despair everywhere. Everyone despaired because the men, they, whatever happened to the men was just horrid. There was just despair, and they thought their only way was to write to people in Britain because that's where their hopes lay. They wrote masses and masses and masses of letters. The women wrote letters to the queen because the queen was a mother, and she knew what a mother would feel like. But the queen had gatekeepers, and the gatekeepers said the letters had to be stopped because they were embarrassing. So anyway, all hope was gone for my tribe. And it seemed like there was nothing they could do. These were weak people. They were the losers of the world. But someone hurt them. Someone hurt their cries. And her name was Barbara Castle. She was a Labour MP. She took a flight. She went to Kenya. She saw with her own eyes 804 camps. She saw four-year-old boys shackled to their beds and their fathers had long gone. She saw all of that. She went to the house as a common. She asked questions. And... Apparently, they were not acting on your behalf. Because if they had been acting on your behalf, they would not have been embarrassed. And just like that, one person's bravery saved us. And I'm here alive today because of Barbara Castle, a woman that I will never meet. Next up, we have another story that I think has some relation to the British Empire and the imperial attitudes of the West. It's from a very different point of view, though, and it's a very different echo of that time. This performance was recorded in our first year of doing stand-up tragedy, so apologies that the audio quality isn't ideal. This is Radcliffe Royds performing at the last night we did at the Leicester Square Theatre in 2012. You can find Radcliffe at Radcliffe Royds on Twitter. You can see Radcliffe live every month because he hosts the Spark London Brixton True Storytelling Night, which happens upstairs at the Ritzy on the third Monday of every month. Also, keep an eye out because very soon, possibly this year at Edinburgh, possibly somewhere else, Stand Up Tragedy is going to be producing Radcliffe's first solo show. So that should be coming out this year or next year and is definitely one to make sure you come along to. This story that you're going to hear now is only the tip of an amazing iceberg that is Radcliffe's life, which is basically just a journey through all parts of the class system and 
I'm very glad that he's made it through to tell his tale. Welcome, Rad to the stage, he's right here. <laughs> <laughs> I am tall, blonde and handsome, and I'm not a murderer. I just want to make that clear after the last act. Um, and my story, I'm afraid, is going to lower the tone very early on in the evening. Because um, mine is a tale of tragedy. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story of um, the end of my second marriage. tragedy started at the beginning of my second marriage, but I, I saw it through to the end. I, I've had several wives, two of them are my own now. <laughs> this particular night, cast your minds back, it's the year 2001, I think it was. It was a late July evening. I was returning from Bournemouth, where I'd been on a minor cavort with friends, and I came back to my lovely house in Clapham. Some of you will know Clapper. And I put my key in the lock and it didn't turn. I tried it to the left, and I tried it to the right. And then I, I banged, as you do. <laughs> and I heard a whimpering on the stairs. And because I'm quite posh, obviously, I, <laughs> I have a letterbox. <laughs> so I'm now negotiating it's the second time I've been on my knees to this woman the first time got me into trouble in the first place and the second time as I negotiate the end of my marriage through a letterbox um, left me homeless it left me wifeless which turned out to be quite a good thing um, and completely stuck it was midnight, it was a Sunday night, and I did what any self-respecting person does, and I rang up a mate, and I said, oh, it's a disaster, I've been thrown out, I can't go home. And he was really nice, and he said, just come around, just come home. And I arrived, and he greeted me at the door, uh, gave me a huge hug, and then his girlfriend from behind him appeared with a large tray of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> <laughs> Within an hour, I found my situation that improved dramatically. <laughs> and I didn't give a shit about anything. And I took to this solution like a duck takes to water, as people do. But what I didn't realise was that quite how far down this was going to take me. And the reason, funnily enough, that uh, Dave asked me to come to talk to you here is that I, I ended up living just around the corner from here but not in quite the way or in the circumstances to which I was used. So having started this maniacal drug game, <coughs> crack cocaine, on heroin, on all these things, I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> From the back, you're probably thinking mid to late 30s. <laughs> You'd be wrong. I'm 24, it's been a hard life. <laughs> but... I got, I, just, I got sucked in hugely, and I'd ripped off my friend, I'd ripped off all my other friends, my ex-wife pending, as she turned out to be, had alerted the entire world, my parents, and everybody like that, don't speak to him, he's gone mad, I was living, I was living in my car at this point, um, and uh, so I had a totally carpeted estate, is one way of looking at it. <laughs> um, and I, and I just could not stop. I just could not stop. And then it, I got lower and lower. And eventually, I got so desperate, I decided to ring my parents. 
Uh, my mother is the sort of woman that brushes her hair to answer the telephone. <laughs> and I rang up and I said, Hi, Mum, how would it be if I came home for a few days? And she says, Oh, no, dear, our insurance wouldn't cover that. <laughs> she put the phone straight down. I luckily, through my connections, with all these nefarious chemicals that I was now taking, had met a really amazing guy called Delroy. Or <laughs> well, actually, as he calls him, Delroy. And Delroy had a spiderweb tattoo across half his face, and he had trousers made out of beer mats. And he was a head of an operator just up the road in, in Soho. And he taught me this rather sort of clueless, posh kid who was sort of sinking into, into the morass, how to support a drug habit in the West End. <coughs> and you did that by stealing chicken wings and meat out of Sainsbury's, basically. <laughs> Occasionally Asda, every little helps. <laughs> but I, I, actually, you're listening to the man, I got done for the most well-travelled leg of lamb in Britain. <laughs> they put a tracking device in a leg of lamb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, really. If you, uh, how, how many people, hands up anyone's been to jail here? <laughs> Don't I feel lonely? <laughs> well, I have. Now, when you go to jail, you kind of want to have something with a shotgun or Brinks mat or, you know, something with a bit of meat to it. Well, I say meat. When you go in and they say, what are you in for? story short, Delroy and I, what we did was we would go into Sainsbury's and we'd just fill up our bags with, with, with meat. And I actually was performing quite a useful social function. So for those of you who think I'm a thoroughly dis honest, distasteful person, you'd be right, but I wasn't, I wasn't without some use. And that was that the woman that does Meals on Wheels in Westminster, or Ben did, um, would pay us 50p in the pound. So if we had a £10 pound of steak, she'd pay us a fiver for it. She bought cheap meat to do the Meals on Wheels. So everybody it was a win-win situation. <laughs> the police and this tracking device didn't see it that way. <laughs> and on the night in question that I, I had rung my mother and she put the phone down, Delroy just said, oh, don't worry, you can come home with me. It wasn't like that. He sounds like he should be at the school games, but he just talked like that because he smoked so much crack, he's trying to go. And he told me, come with me. And uh, we went to his house, which was a skip. Um, <laughs> and I do tell everyone it was a convertible skip. It had a rag top. And he and I lived in this skip for about four months in Soho in the West End. But as the weather got colder and as it got rainier and as the shops that we could visit got further and further away. I don't know why we were so easy to spot me, six foot four, with my accent, Delroy with his spider web tattoo. <laughs> um, I decided that we needed, to, we needed to upgrade. I mean, after all, I'd been to public school. I was an educated man. And uh, I decided, Delroy, what do we need to do is rob a bank. <laughs> I was quite high at the time. <laughs> Anyway, I made this brilliant plan. We got high as kites. We thought, right, let's go for it. It wasn't, a, you know, to be honest, the only the only training I'd had for this enterprise was trays of steak out of Sainsbury's. 
But I reckon that if you could get into a bank, you could just clear out the drawers. It was a bit naive, really. <laughs> and um, anyway, we got our shit together. We're fine. God, got ready, hyped ourselves up, got to the bank, and it was Sunday morning. <laughs> well, I wasn't really. Uh, I wasn't going to be deterred by that. Um, I'm glad you're with me. So that was shut. But there was a Portuguese cleaning crew going in. Now, my Portuguese is sketchy at the best of times. I can get a couple of beers and a coffee, and that's about it. And Delroy, Delroy was a little more convincing if he just kept his face to one side and shuffled. And um, anyway, we got into the bank. Anyway, we soon got discovered. It all kicked off, and I got arrested. Quite rightly, too. And, and Bob the Builder, have a go here, parked his Nissan Irvan on my feet, and I was nicked. <laughs> uh, the police thought it was Christmas. They'd cleared up all the missing meat mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up in once with, with crushed toes. My legs swelled up like kebab. Oh, God, I was in a very shit state, I could be said. Well, my legs got fatter and fatter, and my feet got bigger and bigger, and they, even, even they decided I should go to hospital. Now, to get me from a prison, where I deserved to be, to the hospital, where I needed to be, was an operation in itself. I, I couldn't get out of my cell until they cut a pair of trainers so that I could hobble like this. That's all I could do, I could hobble. It took three men to get me actually onto the loo, because my legs were so, I was in a very bad way. Anyway, where they thought I was going to run, I don't know, but they shackled me like this. Hard shackles, not handcuffs, steel shackles. And then on one end of the shackles, they, they, they shackled a, a guard on that side. And then they shackled another guard on that side. So I'm pinioned between these two huge, you know, screws. And, um, and they then put a leather belt around my waist on a 20 foot steel chain. <laughs> I was like Hannibal Lecter on a day out. <laughs> That's how society thought I should be dealt with. Well, they got me in the sort of, you know, there was a sort of, there was a wheelchair ambulance, actually, because it's the only way they could get us all in. And we got to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which has revolving doors. I don't know if you're familiar with those. <laughs> right, are you with me? Okay, so there's the three of us, shackled. <laughs> uh, trying to get in through the doors. And we could get in, the three of us, there was just enough room, but the guy on the chain... <laughs> it kept jamming so we were totally anyway so by now there was this hideous thing where the janitor came out you had to undo the door there's a crowd appearing I'm thinking god I know somebody <laughs> whatever and I went to the ultrasound bit and I got looked at and the, the, the hospital's got a long corridor and I'm quite tall you will spotted that if you're sitting down. And I was quite tall. And there was a, a cousin of my second ex-wife, Pending, as she turned out to be, uh, doing a Friends of the Hospital bookstore. <laughs> she saw me through the distance and went, Yoo-hoo! <laughs> as I was not. She collapsed. She fainted. She was so shocked. The last time she'd seen me was in a white linen suit, getting married in the, in the Algarve. And um, <laughs> it wasn't quite the, 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 what she expected. But the, the, the amazing thing was, as she collapsed, 
I mean, bearing in mind, I'd been living in the skip. I was now physically pinned between these two guys, with a guy leading me on the chain. It was the first time that I saw myself as other people must see me. And at that point, the madness stopped. Thank you very much for listening. And to end, we have Matilda Gregory performing at Tragic Horror, which was the last show we did in 2014. Matilda, I'm sure you'll agree from listening to this clip, is amazing. And we're really pleased to say that she is coming back to join us at Tragic Spring, which is happening on the 25th of April and she's going to be curating the entire second act of that show she's going to be creating an hour dedicated to the theme of tragic bodies and I'm really excited to see what she puts together for that show we're not just going to have tragic bodies we're also going to have tragic sex and tragic beginnings and both of those acts are going to be really special too so make sure you come along to that Saturday, the 25th of April, Tragic Spring. Keep up to date with what Matilda's doing by following her on Twitter, where she's at Mathildia, or you can check out her website, where she's mathildia.wordpress.com. Matilda Gregory! Hello. Thank you for saying hello back. Always like that. Um, yeah, so um, werewolf erotica. Yeah. Um, so what happened was, um, in about 2007, I took a break from... I used to be a stand-up comedian. I took a break from being a stand-up comedian to concentrate on my other career, which was writing erotic novels. That's, that's basically a promotion... Um, I, I mean, it's an obvious career progression when you think about it. I mean, there's not, there's not that much difference between stand-up comedy and writing erotic novels. The main difference I've found, people rarely ask me if I really do all the things in my stand-up comedy. <laughs> Which is a shame, because I, I do. Um, but um, So what happened was, I ended up writing and publishing... Uh, three novels of, of werewolf erotica. Don't ask why, don't question it. You just have to accept it. I've had to. <laughs> just, just accept it. And what happened, I was really excited about writing these novels. I was really thrilled to be asked to write them and to have them published. Um, I worked really, really hard on them. And um, when, they, when they came out, I, I thought this was going to be huge. Um, you know, there are authors like Anne Rice, like Laurel K. Hamilton. They sell hundreds of thousands of books. I thought this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I thought I'd never have to go back to stand-up comedy again. <laughs> yeah, hi. Um, so, um, yeah, what happened was books were published and really no one bought them or read them or, or cared or... Or anything. Um, what I found out really is that werewolf erotica is not a license to print money. It is solely a license to print werewolf erotica. <laughs> and I 
I don't think you actually need a license, um, a license for that. And I was, I was sad, you know, I was very upset about this because, well, the thing is, I, I just wanted to tell stories. That's what I've always wanted to do with my life. I want to, to tell stories. You know, sometimes they're about werewolves having sex. Not all the time. It's about 60-40, but that's, that's what I wanted to do. So I'm going to tell you a true story now. Um, this is a true story. Once upon a time, there was a man. He's a real man, and his name is Andreas Martinez. And I don't know that much about him. I've never met him. I've never even seen a picture of him. Um, all I know about him is he's in prison. He's in a high-security prison in California called Pelican Bay. He's a member of the Mexican Mafia. He's in prison for attempted murder. And he likes werewolf erotica. <laughs> Specifically, mine. <laughs> Um, what, I've, what I've discovered is in prisons in America, quite a lot of the, um, the books in the prison libraries, they get donated by like wives and mothers and girlfriends, so they end up with quite a lot of romance novels. So apparently, it's not that unusual for a man who's in the Mexican mafia, who's in prison for attempted murder, to read a book like this, with a cover like this, and the strap line, Who Can Tame the Wolf Inside?, and enjoy it so much that he goes on Amazon and he orders the sequel, which has a cover like this and the strap line, she's tamed him, but can he tame her? <laughs> Quick aside, I'm really good at writing strap lines. Um, he ordered the book online. When this book arrived at the prison, it was seized by prison authorities. They declared it contraband because it was apparently likely to incite violence. He's in the Mexican mafia. I wrote this book in four months. I don't know that I'm that good. Um, but, you know, now in that situation, I think another man, a lesser man than Andreas Martinez, would just read another book. <laughs> Not him. He took the prison to court. <laughs> he took the prison to court for two years to be allowed to read a book I wrote about werewolves having sex. This is a true story. His decision resulted in this. This is the court report. It's a legal document. I'm going to read you an extract from it. This is what it says. You can download this from the internet. I did. Petitioner Andreas Martinez, a prison inmate, ordered by mail a copy of The Silver Crown, a book by Matilde Madden. That's my pseudonym. The book was confiscated by prison authorities before it was delivered to the petitioner on the grounds that it was contraband, specifically erotica. Through a series of administrative appeals, 
the prison has clarified that it deems the book to be obscene and tending to incite violence and is therefore subject to the rules governing contraband in prison. There are a great number of graphic sexual encounters, one per chapter, including detailed descriptions of intercourse, sodomy, oral genital contact, legal document, oral <laughs> anal contact, voyeurism, exhibitionism, and menage a trois. <laughs> Semen is mentioned. I don't know why they felt the need to spare. You think at the end of that list, you'd think it probably has been mentioned. Goes on to say this. The Silver Crown is no more violent than several other books available at the Shoe General Library at Pelican Bay, as well as recognised great works of literature, such as Homer's Iliad and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. This was quite an odd thing that happened to me. <laughs> Granted, we are dealing with a book isolated, passages of which, standing alone, may be considered sexually offensive. The question then becomes whether the work as a whole may be said to lack serious literary value because it is interlaced with pornography. <laughs> what they decided to do was read the book and then assess whether it had enough literary merit for him to be allowed to read it, despite the porn. Now, I think this document, you know, for a lot of people, maybe it's quite an important document. Maybe it represents something about freedom, about human rights, about the idea that no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstances, you should be allowed access to the arts, no matter what your choice of the arts might be. But to me, as the author of the book this is about, this is something far more important. Because this is a 30-page long book review. <laughs> and it's amazing. <laughs> At one point... <laughs> At one point in here, it says this about my book. It says... Considerable effort went into the creation of the book, and the plot is more than a sham. <laughs> more than a sham. If you were thinking she writes werewolf erotica, I bet the plots are a sham. Not only are you wrong, technically breaking the law. <laughs> but the most amazing thing it says about my book in here is it describes my book as perhaps less than Shakespearean. <laughs> Perhaps. Like, there is some doubt as whether my werewolf erotica legally better than Shakespeare. So I'm, you know, quite happy quite happy with that. Most of these quotes, they're from a guy called uh, Peter Orner. He's a literary author based in California. They got him to read the book and then give evidence in court as an expert witness about my werewolf erotica. And uh, he said this, he said this about the case. He said, um, Pelican Bay is one of the most violent prisons in California. They've got some extraordinarily serious problems. My humble thought, speaking as a writer, is that an inmate reading a book about werewolves having sex is the least of their problems. <laughs> Which is great. But of course, you know, this is essentially a courtroom drama. 
You want to know what happened, of course. Um, this is the judgment. It says this, it says, uh, we will be hard pressed to say the silver crown has significant literary value and is a work of great import. The book has a plot, <laughs> a theme, Freedom, I would say, is the main theme. I had no idea. <laughs> a woman freeing herself from the confines of a set life. Alfie represents a kind of freedom she never had with her husband, Blake. The, the complication, of course, is that he is a werewolf. <laughs> and a relationship with him interferes with her professional responsibility. You should know, she's a werewolf hunter. That's the issue. <laughs> this involves a universal problem. I'm not a universal problem. Um, you have a certain responsibility to be one person, but life comes along and changes you by turning you into a werewolf. <laughs> it's not Tolstoy, fine, but this author knows how to move a story, carry out a plot with a theme, and how to give her characters a certain depth characteristic of literary fiction. In addition, judged quantitatively, the amount of offensive material in The Silver Crown is smaller than the portion of the book carrying forward the non-offensive plot. <laughs> we conclude first that the prison failed to abide by governing statutes and regulations in judging the book to be obscene, and we go on to find that the book is not obscene, applying the correct definitions, and further, that it is not likely to incite violence. We therefore grant the writ and order the warden to give the book to the petitioner. So that's good, isn't it? He got the book after two years. No pressure or anything. I hope he likes it. Sequels can be quite hard. Anyway, all I know is so far he hasn't come to attempted murder me. Um, but that's the stuff. They're real books you can buy. I mean, you can buy them if you want. He, he, he really liked them. Um, but that's the end of my story. Thank you very much. So that's the end of our Tragic True Stories. If you want more Tragic True Stories, come along to Tragic Winter on Saturday the 28th of February at the Hackney Attic. You can buy your tickets in advance for that for £5 through the Hackney Picture House. Doors will open at 7.30. Tickets on the door are £7. Performances will start at 8 o'clock with Tragic Fairy Tales where we'll have some performers telling some tragic non-true stories. Then we've got our second act, which is Tragic Climate, which is going to be curated and guest hosted by Alice Bell. And we'll be focusing on the more wintry sides of the tragedy that is climate change. So there'll be a lot of truth in that section, I'm sure. And then we're ending up the night with Tragic Death, which I suspect will feel very in keeping with the episode that you've just heard today. We're going to have Jack Rook we're going to have Izzy Lawrence and we're going to have Amy McAllister. But we won't just end it on a downer. 
We'll be ending it with a tragic sing-along around about 10.30. And then if you want to keep the tragedy going, we'll be showing off our tragic dance moves well on into the early hours of the morning. But the performances end at 10.30 for those of you who like to go home and get your tragic beauty sleep. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reaction.